Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Monica Buffa, who's Director of the Mind, Brain, and Neuroscience Trials Division in the Center for Trials Research at Cardiff University. Monica, welcome. Thanks for speaking to me today. We're going to be talking about a pilot feasibility trial that she has published in PTJ entitled Physical Activity, Self-Management, and Coaching Compared to Social Interaction in Huntington Disease results from what they call the Engage HD trial. So I'm delighted to have a chance to discuss your trial with you, Monica. Let me start by giving a quick synopsis for listeners, and then we can talk about the trial. The authors, as I shared, looked at the feasibility and the outcomes of a 14-week intervention that focused on physical activity, self-management, and coaching. And they compared it to a social contact intervention in individuals with Huntington's disease. And the whole intent was to conduct a pilot that set the stage for a larger trial. They randomized 22 subjects to the physical intervention arm and 24 to the social intervention. And although there was no indication of between-group treatment effects on function, the authors do report increases in self-efficacy for exercise as well as levels of physical activity in the physical intervention arm, which lends very nice support for their larger trial, which uh, I've learned has recently been funded. Is that a fair synopsis, Monica? Yeah, I think that's a good summary of what we did. You know, we really were looking to work out how we could help people with Huntington's disease to stay active. So it was quite a challenge though in, in the population, and we were really excited to be able to show that we could do what we set out to do. Well, I really congratulate you and your co-authors for taking this on because, as you note, it is a very challenging population in which to try to increase their physical activity. So I I applaud your working with this uh, population. Could you talk a little bit about the Engage Physical Activity Intervention? You noted that it's grounded within the framework of self-determination therapy, but could you share with our listeners a little bit more about the underpinnings of this intervention? Essentially, the intervention itself was grounded in a framework which was, as you described it, based on self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is a theory of human motivation, and it's been applied across a whole range of health behaviors, including physical activity interventions. And it suggests that motivation in general, and especially in respect to physical activity, can be placed along a continuum from extrinsically motivated and regulated to a more autonomous and intrinsically regulated behavior. So motives for being active become internalized. And the concept of self-determination is suggested to arise from feelings of, of autonomy, so being in control of your behavior and having choices, having an element or feeling that you have an element of competence, so having some ability to master what it is you're trying to do, and then relatedness, which was about feeling connected and understood by others. 
And so we looked at, and in particular in, in our intervention, we focused the communication styles that we were asking our coaches to utilize were really sort of underpinned by these concepts. And we were looking for a communication style that really encouraged people to be autonomous in their choices and that gave them some flexibility about what type of activities they were doing. But also where they were perhaps lacking in confidence, it was about how you could make them feel competent to do these activities. And also it's about the listening. So the core part of the coaching style that we were asking our physical therapists and our coaches to utilize was underpinned by this theory. I must say I'm, I'm very pleased to see your intervention so grounded in uh, social science and behavioral science theory. I think so many times I, over the years, have seen physical activity interventions that are not theoretically grounded, so I really applaud you for doing that. Now, the comparator for your study, you chose uh, a social intervention for your controls, and uh, the focus was conversational interaction. It's an interesting choice, and could you talk a little bit about why that was the comparator that you thought would be the best for your study? Yes. So this was something that has really arisen out of the series. We've, you know, we've run a fair few different studies really trying to start to look at the effects of, of exercise and physical activity in Huntington's disease. And where the, a lot of this started was in the animal models. And sort of all the evidence in support of even beginning to investigate this as a potential disease-modifying intervention was in the environmental enrichment literature. You know, we used to have these conversations in our team and with our neurologists, and we used to talk about environmental enrichment. And really, if you look at those studies and the animal model studies, you know, it's very easy to say, well, this part is the physical activity and this part is the group interaction and the social interaction. So we wanted to be able to, it was a mechanistic question, is it the social interaction or is it the actual activity that led us down that line of choosing a social interaction intervention? The challenge was that actually we really looked hard in the literature and we didn't find any other interventions that we could use that would give us this type of social interaction. And we also wanted to be quite careful that we didn't have any, just by the nature of what it was that people were doing, introduce any additional physical activity. So we developed the intervention ourselves in consultation with our patient representative groups. So we sat down with them and we said, well, what is it that we need to talk about and how do we talk about it and how do we structure it? So we developed cue cards that could be used to help the, the conversations so that we knew we could control the conversations to some extent. But also we really didn't want to introduce this additional physical activity. And I think when you look at the traditional papers where been a, there's been an active comparator, you know, I always wonder when someone talks about yoga, I know when I do yoga, I don't think it is nothing. There is something that you're doing that is active, and I think it can contaminate what you then start to test. It's very tricky to find the right comparator, which is one of the things that really struck me in reading about your paper. Another challenge that struck me when I read through the paper is making sure your coaches were competent to deliver this theoretically grounded, uh, engaged intervention. And you had coaches in the pilots from eight different specialty clinics. Could you talk a little bit about the training and the challenges that you faced in making sure the coaches were competent to do, yes. the, do the intervention? Yeah, and I think one of the core sort of focuses of the work we did was about whether we could establish the fidelity of the intervention. 
you know, that took a lot of work to kind of develop. So in the first instance, what we did was we had, we had quite a well-structured training program. We had a training manual and we did whole-day training sessions at all of the sites where we went through all the details, very, very structured where we had, and we had checklists. And in fact, we did some additional fidelity evaluation, which we've published in a related journal where we were looking at, you know, analyzing audio recordings of how they actually spoke to the people during their actual consultations. But the core feature that was really critical to this whole thing was having a lead intervention coordinator. So this role was actually taken by my colleague, Dr. Laurie Quinn, who's now in Colombia, and she was the lead contact person for all of the coaches at the sites. So they would speak to her. One of, one of the other things which I think is less obvious from this particular paper was that we had a centralized database. And that database was purpose-developed, which meant that we could have permission levels. So we could actually show the coaches some element of the assessment data, and they could be accessing it. So what we did was the coaches would all get a summary of the functional level of these individuals before they went out to go and see them. They would then have a phone conversation with Dr. Quinn where they would talk through what that might mean because one of the other challenges is that when you've got perhaps less expert clinicians in the field who don't really understand the disease, they need to have some ideas about how they might interpret what that means. And then they would go in after the first visit, they would have another phone call where they would feed back and talk about their planning. And we audio recorded their third visit, listened to those recordings, rated them, and then they got additional feedback about whether we felt that they were actually hitting the kind of targets in terms of those three aspects of the communication style we were looking for. So the training was upfront, and then it was throughout each sort of intervention delivery, we were ongoing monitoring in terms of how we were making sure that they continued to deliver it to the standard we wanted. It's nicely standardized, and I think that will serve you extremely well in your larger trial. One of the uh, other challenges that struck me in working with this patient population, as you note in your article, is that given the associated cognitive and mood disorders, apathy and decreased motivation, for example, it makes it very challenging to recruit these individuals to a trial like yours. Could you talk a little bit about those challenges and how you overcame them because you were quite successful. So in terms of recruitment strategies, I think one of the aspects that makes it probably relatively more systematic to be able to do this recruitment is that all of our sites were sites of a global observational study. So the clinicians at the sites all knew the people coming through their clinics quite well because they annually they attend annual visits. Because the Huntington's disease community is very joined up globally through this Enroll HD observational study, there's sort of one aspect where you might get an element of pre-screening because the clinicians know who's coming through the clinic. That's something that is a bit challenging to deal with in terms of generalizability and potentially some pre-screening. And certainly at the site where, where I was leading the screening, we screened everybody and then we did our eligibility. But, you know, it's not that easy when you're running eight sites to make sure that everybody, that there isn't this pre-screening going on. So there's one element of, I think, for the future, for the larger trial, you know, we want to be having much tighter inclusion criteria so that we can really make sure that we can be saying, right, people who have a score of X 
on a cognitive scale, this is where you would you would say yes, this person is eligible. So I think there's that aspect. Whilst we were we were successful, it took us quite a long time. We we were recruiting for a good long time, you know, longer than I'd hoped to recruit to have to recruit to hit our sample size sort of targets. But also one of the other things was being very clear about how we could support these families, and then that there wasn't an additional burden. So you know, we went to them. They had to come in for their assessments, but you know, all the activities in terms of the intervention happened in their home. So I think that was one of the other reasons in terms of people were relatively happy to be involved if they were eligible, because actually we made it as easy as possible for them. You do have that classic trade-off of trying to get the right population and without sacrificing too much generalizability. Yeah, but, but, you know, also we need to be aware that, you know, this is a very, very sort of broad spectrum of individuals. You know, people could be pre-manifest, you know, no symptoms really and still be coming into your clinic. And they could be pretty much immobile and coming in and not able to kind of in any way participate. So there's a range, there's a functional range, and we didn't particularly define that as clearly as I think we could have. And so for a future trial, you know, I think the purpose of a feasibility trial is to be able to really say going forward, these are the, the inclusion criteria. I think actually not being too focused in with your criteria for the pilot might be to your advantage now that you move to the larger trial. Any physical or psychiatric condition that prohibited the participant from completing the intervention or the assessments. Now, for me as an experienced recruiter and as a physical therapist, that was very easy for me to kind of go, this person can't do it and this person can. But if you didn't have an experienced person recruiting, that was a very, very difficult criteria to establish. I can see where it might be challenging to get a standardization of how people would apply such a criterion. Yeah, and we had some sites where, in fact, people were recruited and actually, you know, their home lives were just too challenging because of all the complexity of the disease and their social situation that actually perhaps they shouldn't have been recruited, perhaps they shouldn't have been eligible, but we couldn't, we didn't have that clearly enough to find. I want to talk a little bit about your outcome of physical activity. You used the self-report questionnaire in the pilot. Is that your plan for the larger study, and have you considered using something like an activity monitor or something like that? I'm curious what your thinking is on that. We have considered extensively the use of activity monitors, and actually we've used them in some of our earlier trials. We used them. So in one of our original gym-based studies, we used stepwatch activity monitors. And, you know, they bring their own challenges, and they bring challenges that I think are only now becoming recognized in the literature. The data is incredibly messy. Also, they're an intervention in their own right. So having Mm -hmm. a, a monitor that's not blinded, you know, people will do more as a result of it. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on deciding whether this is an outcome measure or an intervention, and also thinking about where these devices are placed, if they're on the wrist, which is where people are going to have better adherence, then you're picking up things that are not activity. And we don't really yet, we haven't yet sort of mastered the algorithms to be able to say what it is that that is measuring. So, you know, that's one aspect. 
the variability, so when we used them previously, I mean, the standard deviations were just enormous. So I think until we've really understood what it is that we're, we're measuring with these monitors, I wouldn't particularly think that it wouldn't be a primary outcome. I understand. I've encountered similar challenges in my own work, so I understand completely, which is why I wanted to ask the question. You mentioned outcomes, and that leads me to my final question. You explored a range of potential outcomes in your pilot. Could you talk a little bit about, let listeners know, what will be your primary hypotheses in your larger trial? I think I kind of need to go back to what the larger trial would look like to be able to kind of really think about that hypothesis. And this was a lifestyle intervention. It came out of us recognizing that, you know, we have very unique challenges in the United Kingdom. Typically, people with Huntington's disease here don't get any usual care. Yeah, usual care is no care. What we realized after running a series of these trials was that people really liked them, they benefited from them, they enjoyed them. And as soon as we stopped the trial, they stopped exercising. You know, and they just said, well, we just don't carry on. So this came from this concept of we needed to find a way to help people to engage long-term in physical activity. But in itself, this intervention, I think, would be unlikely to change disease course. I don't think it would really target the concept about what it is that we're trying to achieve in exercise, either through secondary prevention or if we could actually make any changes in brain structure and function, which is where the animal model work is suggesting there may be benefits, then to do that, you know, we need to be doing more intensive aerobic strengthening training, task-specific training, you know, much, much more intensive than what it was that we did in Engage HD. So really, the follow-on trial for us has to be a combination. And we've just recently completed and published Exert HD, and this is again, you know, with my colleague, Dr. Rory Quinn, where we actually evaluated the intensive intervention over 12 weeks. So the follow-on trial is going to be a combination where we take the intensive intervention and we add on the behavior change intervention over a longer period of time. So the outcomes in terms of the Engage HD intervention are going to be focused on whether people sustain exercise, sustain physical activity. There may be an element of ongoing use of activity monitors. We'd look at self-efficacy, we'd look at participation, but in terms of the more intensive exercise, we'd be looking at measures of motor function, which would be typically in Huntington's disease, we use something called the Unified Huntington's Disease Rating Scale. Well, thank you, Dr. Buffa. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk about your study with me. I find it fascinating. I look forward to hearing more about your larger trial. I wish you every success in your work as you go forward. So thank you very much. Thank you.